The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors. Welcome back, Long Island. You're listening to DDI on Autism on 103.9 FM, keeping an eye on autism and giving a voice to its Long Island community. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Romas, and again, so glad that you can join us this morning as we share and explore all relevant issues related to autism spectrum disorder. This morning, we will con- be continuing my conversation with Dr. Georgina Lynch. Uh, you may remember Dr. Lynch currently works at the Department of Speech and Hearing Sciences, Washington State University College of Medicine in Pediatrics, Allied Health Science, and Neuroscience. Welcome back, Dr. Lynch. Thank you. Glad to be here again. Oh, thanks. You know, where we left off last week, we were talking about your very promising research in the area of developing and identifying early early markers of autism using pupillary metric biomarkers. Maybe you can just speak to that uh, again uh, for a little while, just so we're all on the same page. Sure. Uh, In a nutshell, essentially what we're doing is we're testing the pupillary light reflex, which is uh, the pupil response to light. As light is introduced to the eye, the pupil has some predictable things that it does. And we are investigating the use of the pupillary light reflex or the PLR in young children with autism and comparing this to typical development. Our goal with this research is that we're essentially looking for thresholds of the PLR response that tell us there may be something atypical going on in terms of early brain development, or at least maturation of the visual pathway. Right. And as I understand, you were looking at the rate of constriction and also the rate of return uh, to, uh, I'm going to call it a relaxed state towards a non-sensitized alert. That's right. And so we're studying these patterns, the the cycle itself, the PLR cycle, which results in what we call a pupillogram. And we can look at a curve that relates to the time points within which constriction and redilation back to uh, the point of the original pupil diameter happens after the light stimulus is removed. The reason we're studying this so closely and in depth is we see this as a potential auxiliary tool for medical providers to be using as they're conducting well-child exams and looking at children in pediatric practice, where primarily most of autism screening is occurring. Currently, we're using behavioral tools to do that screening, and there's been a real push for us over the last decade or so to try to find more objective markers uh, for providers to uh, weigh behavioral concerns against physical maturational differences. And so that provider has to put together a lot of information in making the decision whether to refer or not. And I think what we've learned over the last, you know, decade or so, even 20 years, is that the average age of diagnosis has remained essentially the same at four and a half years, despite uh, universal screening and the use of behavioral tools alone. So it's not to say we uh, dismiss those tools or get rid of those tools, but if we can bolster behavioral screening with some physical markers, then that can be extremely helpful in that 
building confidence on the provider's part of making that referral decision. You know, it's, it's interesting, isn't it, that static age diagnosis is especially puzzling, given the increased prevalence. I mean, a dramatically increased exactly. prevalence. But it's a little counterintuitive. That's something we would expect. And I think that's a good bridge into something we touched on just a little bit, which is around what the implications of your work could be uh, for diagnosis and treatment, and what assumptions we shouldn't be making yet around the research and what is fine, what is finding. Yeah, definitely. So our our goal is that potentially looking to the future, the implications of this research does two things. One, it helps us to better understand uh, the visual pathway in autism. We know that the visual system underlies a lot of the challenges that relate to social language needs and, and differences in, in communication that way from an early point in development. The second goal from the more practical side is that it can introduce the option for accessing early intervention earlier, because perhaps that provider is going to feel more confident in making a decision to complete an evaluation and not advise that parent to wait. And therefore, it opens a critical window of opportunity during a prolific period of brain development upon which that child can access services that will make a difference in the long term. What it definitely isn't is it isn't a direct diagnostic tool. Just because you have an atypical PLR would not necessarily mean it's a one-to-one correspondence that you would have autism by any means. Uh, It does, however, help us to understand whether we're in the range of typical development or not. These PLR metrics can be mapped much like height or weight can be mapped in terms of a predictable pattern relative to your age. And we're starting to explore those age effects. One thing that's a challenge, you know, as a researcher and as a former clinician is we really don't have a strong body of biomarkers for autism. (laughs) And therefore, this can only take us so far until it's compared to other biomarkers that have also been deemed feasible in terms of diagnosis. There's so much overlap in terms of um, genetic markers that we tend to see the same overlap for the PLR in terms of some of those other conditions that are affected in terms of presentation of autism characteristics and what's going on um, under the hood, so to speak, in terms of your genetic makeup. Well, if you can forgive a really, I guess a kind of a naive question, but I find myself wanting to ask you, uh, you have such a strong background in speech and hearing sciences, and yet your work is largely visual. Yes. That's, yes. That surprises me just a little bit. Maybe Absolutely. I, I often will say, as I introduce the talk, is, well, how does a speech-language pathologist right, right. <laughs> suddenly spend their entire life studying pupillometry? <laughs> right. And so the journey of getting to here is quite interesting. Uh, as, as most people are aware, but not all, speech pathologists are trained with a pretty heavy neuroscience component to their clinical degree. As I moved into research and looking at uh, the influence of the visual pathway, what led me to this is, is we're pretty you know, well-trained in the influence of cranial nerve innervation on speech and language development. And the cranial nerves are located in the brainstem, and they affect many of the primary processes necessary for speech acquisition, um, hearing, as well as basic facial muscular control for being able to eat, swallow, and other things. And so 
taking a model that we see where that's disrupted in patients with stroke, for example, is what led me to saying, you know, we have similar problems with cranial nerve uh, informal measurement of that in autism. And perhaps we could look at efficiency of cranial nerve innervation. Well, the pathway that made the most sense for testing that is the PLR, the pupillary light reflex, because if we look at the neural circuit in the brain for what innervates that, it's a pretty direct circuit. It's straight from the brain stem to the um, nerves that control the pupillary sphincter, and that can be activated and elicited very efficiently with a light stimulus, as opposed to some other ways of testing cranial nerve innervation. So in looking at this, it, it gave us an indirect assessment of what's happening at that level of the brain. Now, there was a second kind of reasoning for doing this, is we also know that the visual system is a primary driver for the acquisition of speech and language and looking at the way in which we process things visually, whether it's visual attention or um, whether it's the reflexive action are two very different parts of the brain in terms of, of what's eliciting that. With visual attention, we're looking higher in the cortex, but that affects all your ability to learn to communicate with others and to engage with caregivers as you're developing language. The reflex was important for us to test because there's no um, confounding variable. You can't really control how your eye responds to that light. And so what it did is it let us look at this very small but precise kind of measurement of that level of brain activity. So that allows essentially for a level of specificity to be able to contain the work, right, and contain the studies. So even these preliminary inferences will be grounded in something that we can kind of uh, wrap our heads around and play with a little bit without drawing an awful lot of extraneous information into the, into the mix. That's right. And so there's a lot of work that's been done in the area of eye tracking and visual attention, some really good work with this. And with that, we use binocular eye tracking to look at visual gaze. What are you attending to? And we know there are red flags for autism early in development, depending on what children are attending to in terms of joint attention to objects, et cetera. Pupillometry is much more precise. What it's measuring is that primary visual pathway system in the absence of attention. Mm -hmm. That's where, back to your point about sensitivity and getting to specificity, it allows us to remove some of those other confounds that influence it. We do have to control for light. We've got to control for a few other things, quiet environments, you're not over aroused, et cetera. Um, but it, it's an interesting gateway into studying that part of the brain in autism. The segment is going too fast. So I'm gonna ask listeners to stay with us. When we come back, let's use that time to discuss future studies, where the research is going and what you'd like to see. Stay with us, I'm Dr. Mike Romas. 103.9 FM, DDI, keeping your eye on autism. Continue my conversation with Dr. Georgina Lynch. Stay with us. Welcome back, Long Island. You're listening to DDI and Autism on 103.9 FM. Dr. Mike Romas here. Continue my conversation with Dr. Georgina Lynch. 
That's an instructor, Gina. We're looking at pupillary response as a biometric. And during the break, I asked you if you're if you're comfortable to tell us a little bit about how you got into this area of research. Uh, you know, you've accomplished so much in terms of what this might mean for the field. And I find myself wanting to know how you got involved and where you'd like to see this go over time. Sure. And I, I will definitely say that this is this scientific work really starts from the experiences that I've had with the families that I've treated, you know, families and children. And, and when I say that, I mean that in tandem with them. It was quite frequent that I would work with a family where we're concerned about speech and language, and it's quite apparent that there is more going on and Having to go through that journey with a parent, I think, is um, very eye-opening. I had had many children where they'd go back to the pediatrician and say, oh, they're, you know, let's just wait. Oh, their words will be coming soon. Or, um, oh, you know, they're just temperamental. Um, you know, change the diet, do a few things, you know, try to hold steady. It'll come along. And I saw the outcome was quite often always the same. You know, it, it's it's this hesitancy to firm up moving in that direction. And I will say that pediatricians and other medical providers have come a long way with not delaying that conversation. Uh, a, an informed parent is always a better um, position to be in than not knowing or letting a healthcare provider wait to prepare you for that, which some would say, well, the parent isn't ready to hear this. Well, I can't think of other disorders where we would ever do that. You know, your child has, you know, cancer. Well, we're going to tell you that so you can make some informed decisions, you know. Um, I can think of a couple of families where this was entirely the case and that window closed. Some diagnoses didn't come until as late as six, even though the child was nonverbal. And, you know, on a personal note, having a family member who um, was quite obvious from an early age and, and she was about two or three when this was apparent and medicated heavily for ADHD, um, she was speaking, but she was very different. And this journey went on with lots of negative side effects, still lots of social issues at school, lots going on, and was diagnosed with autism into adolescence after everything else had kind of failed. Once different types of interventions were used and her awareness of this, it changed the whole makeup in which she engaged in the world. What I would say is it's a parent's choice on how they want to um, have their child um, engage in the world. Neurodiversity is really the beauty of autism. This is not something that we're trying to fix, but it's something to help that parent be informed. And so that's what brought me into this is to say, as a clinician, I can I can treat it. It's a lot easier to treat if I get you earlier. I tell you that, especially if you have childhood apraxia of speech and, and there's something that can be done to elicit more uh, likelihood for verbal speech development. Uh, but if I have doctors who are waiting until five or six years of age to suddenly have that conversation with a parent, that window of opportunity closes. So 
my hope for the future is that this work informs science and our understanding of an integrated system for speech language acquisition and learning and social development in autism, but also that this small piece of medical information can be used just to move the needle ever so slightly, just to bolster what we're doing in terms of looking at it from less of a behavioral disruption and more of a pathway, a a course of brain development that is different very early on and allows us to see that despite other factors seeming to come together. So it's a challenge. It's ambitious, as you mentioned earlier, but it hits home when there are personal people in your life that you've seen go through that journey. Very, very difficult. I genuinely appreciate uh, your sharing. I think we are very excited uh, for your research and its promise and, and where it can go. And as you say, with autism, historically, it's always been diagnosed indirectly, it, it kind of no blood test uh, for autism, autism. And with that, there can be a lot of denial. Uh, of course, there can be, and we can lose some very valuable windows of opportunity. And I think that's reason enough to look more closely at possible biometric ideology. Uh, um, I, I think the other piece that has, has, I'm finding exciting too, uh, you know, as a psychologist, the implications of your work for a wide range of other co-occurring psychiatric conditions, I'm thinking specifically, of course, about anxiety and, and traumatic stress and, uh, and maybe even phobias and that, that idea of hypervigilance and increased sensitization and what this can mean, because for all of those as well, no direct blood test. And the idea of being able to get this right more easily is very exciting. Do you see it going in that direction possibly? I do. And I think you bring up such an excellent point. That's exactly the concern is how do these other psychiatric conditions, you know, pupillometry has been around for a very long time. (laughs) This started in the you know, the 60s. This isn't something new in that regard, particularly in studying it in mental health. We know that that circuit that we're testing, that neural circuit of the PLR, it's a direct relationship between arousal and environmental condition. And so phobias, social anxiety, all of those things, you're going to see this hypersensitivity in that response. One thing that I do believe, and this is probably more anecdotal than scientific, is that we're constantly trying to treat autism medicinally with medicines that really go into kind of the cortical aspects of the disorder. And what's new about this kind of research is it's saying, is there something that can be done at a more primary process level? And when we think about how we treat social anxiety, does it open an avenue or a door toward further research in that regard that lets us look at that circuit that's driving the overall system as opposed to further up in the cortex where things are a little bit different? I I would also add that I think we won't be able to parse those things out as easily um, because environment kind of shapes us in terms of how we associate some of our responses and our, our makeup in terms of social anxiety. But some children are clearly predisposed predisposed in this way. 
when I think of propanolol or some of those other um, kind of immediate releasing uh, medicines that are trying to tap into that part of the circuit, it reminds me a lot of uh, what we're trying to influence here in terms of, of um, mediating some of that lower level primary process system. And, and the auditory brainstem response is very similar to kids with ASD, you know, they'll, that that cranial nerve, eighth cranial nerve, is activated much differently than it is in typical development. And so, again, that's the primary driver behind processing noise and backgrounds that are quite loud and overwhelming and overstimulating. And so, you know, it, it, there, it's definitely a puzzle to pick apart, um, but one that is quite interesting to as you do delve deeper into it. What I appreciate especially is that the idea of a biomarker in this way comes completely without judgment. We find out what it means over time, and that overlays nicely into what we were talking about uh, with respect to neurodiversity and growth and and, uh, and no stigma, really. Just kind of let's look at this. What does it mean even before we determine whether or not we're going to treat something? So this has enormous implications and I'm excited. I, you know, this again. This is going way. This has gone way too fast. I'm going to ask you. Is there, <laughs> right now for next year? I think a lot's going to happen in a year's time, and I, I hope you'll consider coming back and giving us a tremendous update. Uh, I want to know more. This has not been enough. I suspect it's not been enough for our listeners. Uh, Dr. Georgina Lynch, Washington State University. Such good research. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. I appreciate being able to share with others. It's been a pleasure. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors.